Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series focusing on issues related to religion, culture, and politics. In this episode, Emily Judd interviews YDS Associate Dean for Student Affairs, Reverend Vicki Flippin. Reverend Flippin discusses the new Good Life Center at YDS and how it is a response to a culture of toxic productivity. Allowing our bodies to rest is actually an act of resistance against that toxic ideology. She recalls her experience pastoring a church that provided sanctuary for people at risk of deportation. The real opposition to our work came from the federal government. And Reverend Flippin shares the surprising inspiration behind her decision to become a pastor. Funny enough, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X in college, uh, that opened me up to ministry. Yale Divinity School opened the Good Life Center this past September. Can you explain the mission of the center and how is it going to serve the student body at YDS? I'd say like many of the best things at YDS, it started with student advocacy. So I really want to give props to the students. And they did all this research and showed us um, how companies and universities are creating these quiet resting spaces on their campuses um, for the well-being of of their employees and their their students. And I thought, well, we are already doing that at Yale. There's a, um, a space downtown on Yale's main campus called the Good Life Center, which was started by um, Yale's very famous psychology professor, Dr. Lori Santos. And it's a space for students that's based on this scientific research that she did on the elements of a happy and meaningful life. And I think, you know, thinking about what makes for a happy and meaningful life really resonates you know, with the, the interests of, of students here at YDS. And it turns out that one of the elements of a happy and meaningful life um, is healthy habits of rest. And so we worked with the Good Life Center at Yale to create this room, which is um, built for technology-free rest, and it's located in the Southeast Building of YDS. Uh, so it has recliners and eye masks and earplugs if, if folks want to go in there and take a nap between classes. It has um, coloring books and a soothing atmosphere um, if folks who just, they just want to unplug and rest their minds and their spirits for a moment. And I've also placed in there a book and a deck of cards by um, somebody who's been influential in, in my journey. Uh, somebody named Trisha Hersey, who's known as the Knapp Bishop. Um, and Trisha Hersey has this whole like theology of rest that's that's like grounded in the experience of enslaved ancestors who were not allowed to rest and whose bodies and lives were treated as machines and, and sites of labor for capitalism. And she writes, you know, a lot about how descendants of enslaved ancestors and how all of us we still live under this ideology that our bodies are just sites of labor output, and um, we still we treat rest really as a luxury item that's that's out of reach for some people. Like bodies and labor are still being exploited in our economy, and so Hersey writes about how allowing our bodies to rest is actually an act of resistance against that toxic ideology. And for me, Trisha Hersey's work kind of articulates what I think we're trying to do a little bit of with this new resting space at YDS. You currently serve as Associate Dean of Student Affairs at YDS. 
What is the greatest joy and what is the greatest challenge that you have encountered in this position? Can you share those? The greatest joy at YDS is easy. It's getting to work with these students um, who are just awesome and they still believe rightly that they can transform the world for the better. And I love being able to journey with them as they try to equip themselves to do that. Uh, I think that is just the best job in the world. As for a challenge, I think one challenge is that I know what life can be like after a degree like this. Uh, I don't know if you relate to this, um, but we create this like beautiful haven of faith and intellect here at YDS where students get to ask real hard questions about things like how Christianity has participated in oppressive systems. This is a place where they get to dream up more liberatory understandings of community and faith and language about the divine and Here we're surrounded by folks who are trying very hard to build a loving and just world. This is like a beautiful haven here at YDS, and it's also a bubble. Speaking for myself, um, when I went back out into the world, you know, the world of American Christianity, the world of all these denominational politics and our local churches, it's just it's very different from YDS. People are in a different place, and we live in this polarized society, and when we come out of YDS, I think we can find ourselves polarized on the other side of our own congregations and church families, and our challenge, I think, is to resist the idea that spiritual wisdom comes only from places like this, places like YDS. I mean, we we get to experience something really special here. But we're not going to get very far out in the world if we forget how to listen deeply to people with other experiences and ways of thinking, um, or if we stop paying attention when people say things that don't conform to all of like our learned concepts that we get here, you know. So I think the challenge is finding that balance between encouraging our students to be all in here and to stay spiritually open to the communities outside of here. Before your work at YDS, you served as a pastor at First and Summerfield United Methodist Church in New Haven, so not that far down the road from the YDS campus. And the church provided shelter for newly arrived refugees and sanctuary for people who are at risk of deportation. While you were there, did you notice that the church experienced any threats, any opposition for engaging in this type of work? That's a great question. I may be forgetting things, but really what I remember during our years of sanctuary work was just so much support. The people of our church were all in. They were doing this work before I even got to this church. Other faith communities in our area, students at Yale, just like regular folks in the community supported us they, with volunteers. They would they would sleep overnight in the church. They, um, they would bring food. Um, they, they would put their bodies with us at, at rallies. They would send financial gifts. So I'm also proud to say, you know, we received 
received unwavering support from our denominational leaders and agencies and Methodists from around the country, like sent us notes of support and even financial contributions. So I don't remember opposition targeting our church or our work during that time. The real opposition to our work came from the federal government. Every time we called and we sent letters of support and we rallied to bolster the legal appeals of our sanctuary guests, um, and we repeatedly got the answer no, that was the opposition. It was our government and, frankly, the racist immigration laws of this country that made up the threats and the opposition to the work that we were trying to do as a church. There are some critics that say churches are wading into political waters if they provide sanctuary for people who are undocumented, but the churches themselves who are doing this say that they're acting out of a moral responsibility. Where do you fall on that? So I think that we're all in political waters all the time, (laughs) no matter what we do or what we fail to do. Um, Every day, government laws and policies are harming or helping us um, and the children of God around us, our neighbors, and we're being complicit in our silence or we're actively supporting or resisting those laws and policies. We're, We're just political creatures just because we are living in a society together, and I think it's a good thing for people of faith to be intentional about how we engage or don't engage politically because we're being political all the time. Um, I I would definitely agree that no church should put its faith uh, in a political party or or should be a, a religious wing of a political ideology. Uh, our faith is not in powers and principalities, uh, but I do believe that spiritual communities can and should have a voice in the public discourse. I mean, we're Christians, uh, speaking for myself, we follow Jesus of Nazareth, who was a very political human, uh, who gave everything to bear witness to a gospel of compassion for the vulnerable in the face of power. And so for me, when it comes to immigration, you know, when it comes to people who are at risk of deportation and family separation— I'm a follower of Jesus, and my loyalty is to God. It's not to the borders of a nation state. And when I see a neighbor who's fearful that you know their father is going to be torn away from their family because of a racist immigration law, what I see is a neighbor suffering. You know, I see Matthew 25, Jesus himself showing up in a suffering person in my community, and my faith tells me that I have to lead with love and compassion even if it clashes with unjust laws. And so I guess that's what I have to say about faith and politics. Ministry runs in your family. Your mother was a Methodist missionary, and we've had so many people on this podcast who have said, who are ministers, who have said that at least one of their parents was involved in ministry. Did your mother's work as a missionary influence your own career direction? My mother was a long-term missionary in Taiwan, and she served for 14 years teaching English in a Methodist high school and then as a psychology and counseling professor in a Methodist university in Taipei. And I think that her connection to the wider church, to international church agencies, and to like this global network of United Methodist Women 
and our deep family connections to Methodists in Taiwan, I think what that did was it gave me a sense that the Methodist church is my family, you know, for better or for worse. This is my family. It's my faith home. And wherever I go, like, that's that's who I am. That's where I come from. And these days, now that I'm in this this new ministry in higher ed, I think also about how my parents met actually while working at Dongwu Dashe, which is a Methodist University in Taipei. Um, my dad was a higher ed administration there, and my mom was a professor, and she showed me what it means to live a Christian life through a ministry of education. And so it does really feel like a beautiful honoring of my parents to serve the United Methodist Church and to do my ministry um, working in higher education. You have said that you discerned a call to work for social change during your undergraduate program at University of Chicago, and that you decided to work for social change through professional ministry. What made you choose ministry as an avenue to advance social change rather than politics or activism or working in a civil society organization, let's say? What made you choose ministry to advance social change? So it was actually reading the autobiography of Malcolm X in college uh, that opened me up to ministry. I went to college just like 100% sure that I was going to be a scientist. My my passion was astrobiology, which is the study of life elsewhere in the universe, which, you know, looking back has obvious resonances, I think, with theology. But in college, I really started to feel this strong call to do something to help the brokenness I saw in our society. And I turned away from the sciences because I was just kind of noticing just a lot more of the social ills around me. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I will do nonprofit work or direct service or advocacy. At one point I was like, maybe I'll be a midwife. Um, but during the, <laughs> during that time of discernment, I, um, for a class, I happened to read the autobiography of Malcolm X and it was really up to then um, that my faith had always been a, a very important part of my life, but I grew up in a setting where I wasn't really taught to apply my faith to more than my just my individual problems and my individual life. It was in reading about the life of Malcolm X, you know, even though he was of another faith, I was reading about somebody, I was reading about a religious movement that was seeing some of the same brokenness that I was seeing in society and that was addressing that brokenness through building faith communities. And there was just something that clicked for me as I was reading that and and I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm deeply religious. I see everything through the lens of my faith. Like when I look at the horrible things that we do to one another in this world, I see it as a breakdown of the neighbor love that Jesus taught. And I realized that I could do the work of social justice through building up spiritual communities that were loving and just. And that is when I discovered that that was my calling. That was the way that I was being called to do this work. As a graduate of YDS yourself, what do you see as the biggest change from your time as a student to YDS today? I think the biggest change is that our faculty and our student body are far more racially diverse. When I was here, that was 
not the case. And I'll say, obviously, we're not where we need to end up, but there's been real progress and it makes a big difference in the experience of our students and in the experience of myself as a person of color on staff. And, you know, we're not all the way there. When I was a student, we were lobbying for Asian faculty and... As we Methodists say, we're still moving on to perfection, but it is better. And I'm grateful that efforts have borne fruit since I was here. And I'm grateful to be a part of the continuation of those efforts. That's great to hear. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. It feels good to talk to another YDS alum and someone who has made your way back, which is inspiring to hear. I'm sure for a lot of people who feel the nostalgia to somehow be associated back to YDS, this conversation will help with that. So thank you so much.